You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Hi. Hi. I have been holding in so much over the past couple of days. Like every single day, I'm like, oh my God, I want to text Neha when I've been reading this book. (laughs) And now that we get to discuss it, I'm not sure where we're going to start. I know there's so much. I mean, usually it takes me about an hour and a half for me to sit down before we start recording to gather my notes. And just reading this book, I knew that I had my homework cut out for me. So I think I've spent maybe four hours just like researching stuff and (laughs) trying to understand things. And so if you walk away from this episode and you're like, oh, these two people don't know anything, we tried our best, okay? Like I can honestly tell you we tried our best. (laughs) And I have to also give the disclaimer that neither of us are anywhere close to experts on the Mahabharata or Indian history. In fact, I think you can put us on the lower side of that spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't speak for Neha, but if our school days, which I mostly spent with you, have anything to say for what we learned, I'm pretty sure that you know as little as I do. I know. I think so. We both started school in India in seventh grade and technically had history, Indian history until ninth grade only because ninth and 10th grade we did world history it wasn't indian history but wasn't that because we did gcse yeah which is the british curriculum yes so we did so of course they didn't mention at all the subcontinent of india and its surrounding countries or its colonial legacy classic haha i think part of that is because we only did two years of the indian curriculum and Mm -hmm. my assumption is that it went chronologically so We didn't get there because we did the British curriculum. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the things that we'll be talking about in today's episode is stuff that didn't happen too long ago. So I can get firsthand experience from my parents. And so that's kind of where I got most of my information from. Because if I had to read article after article to really understand what was going on, that would have taken years, I think. Yeah. So do you want to give us like a quick summary and then... For this book especially, we're going to dive into a character map, kind of, because it is a little confusing to follow otherwise. Yeah. So, The Great Indian Novel by Shashi Tharoor, that's the book that we're talking about today. A basic summary is that it tells a story of the Mahabharata, but in the context of the Indian independence movement and the 20 to 30 years following the independence. And Mahabharata... Literally, the translation of that means Great India. So I think that's where he got the name of the book, The Great Indian Novel, from. I mean, that's as much as a summary as I can give you without (laughs) having a four-hour-long discussion about the rest of the book. So I'll leave it there. I think most of our episodes, we keep spoiler-free at the beginning for the summary, the character map, and 
the themes. I'm going to say that doesn't apply to this episode because mm-hmm. in order to talk about a lot of what happens, I think we should get into the characters and which character represents which real life person. So going through this book, I was trying to figure out which character was which real life person. And mm-hmm. it took me way too long. Like it was probably fa- page 500 out of 600 when I realized that on the Wikipedia page for this book, there's a table of what every character and, and place. That would have made my life a lot easier. <laughs> yes. In the Mahabharat and in real life. But it's it's kind of nice I didn't discover until later because I felt like it was a nice little mystery for me to mm-hmm. discover like who is who when I got to do my research on the side and I was right about almost all of them. So I feel not too useless in that way. And he has like a glossary at the end of the book. So I actually turned to the glossary a couple times, like hoping that it would be like, oh, this character is this person. I mean, there's like literally like 40, 50 characters in this book and they almost all of them represent a real person. I only found out after I finished reading the book who they were because I wasn't familiar with who they were in real life either right yeah that was true for me also for some of the minor characters but at least for the major characters i think the easiest one to identify is gangadat who Mm -hmm. is bhishma in the mahabharat and in this book represents gandhi and i think that was also like a nice comparison in a way because whenever i think of bhishma in the mahabharat i think of her him as like the grandfather of the Pandavas mm-hmm. and the Kauravas. I could see those comparisons pretty clearly when he were referred to Gandhi as Bhishma. Yeah, and I, th- I think he did a good job making those comparisons because most of the characters that represent a real person have a characteristic that he's trying to draw parallel with that real person's views or characteristics or policies. Mm-hmm. So that's the first one. And then the two brothers... Dhritarashtra and Bandhu. Dhritarashtra represents Jawaharlal Nehru, mm-hmm. and Bandhu represents Subhash Chandra Bose. Actually, this book spends a lot of time with those two characters, disproportionately to the actual Mahabharata, which spends more time on the third generation of Bandhuas and Gauravas. And then the sons of Bandhu, the five Bandhavas, represent, I guess, like five tenets of democracy. And then Dhritarashtra's in the Mahabharata traditionally has a hundred sons, but in this story just has one daughter named Priya Duryodhani, who in the Mahabharata would have been Duryodhan mm-hmm. and in real life represents Indira Gandhi. And then Lord Drupad is like a British emissary. He in real life would be Lord Mountbatten. And his wife, Lady Mountbatten, is, I can't remember, I think in her real life her name is Edwina, in the book it's Georgina, something like that. And then she has an illegitimate daughter with Dhritarashtra, who is Draupadi in the story. And Draupadi has no real life correlation in real life. And as far as I know, there is no illegitimate daughter between Lady Mountbatten and Nehru. Mm -hmm. But she represents Indian democracy. Yeah. And I think those are the major characters. Oh, and the other one is Karna, Kunti's son that no one knows is her son in the Mahabharat. And in this story is representing Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also wrote down Drona as a pretty main character. He represents, oh, yeah, Drona. He represents Jaya Prakash Narayan, who is a freedom fighter. A lot of the characters 
in the Mahabharata that we haven't mentioned yet represent a freedom fighter. But I think one character who was really important in the Mahabharata was Krishna. He is given a role in this book, but I don't think it was a very big role. And also they don't even mention him until like maybe like the last hundred pages of the book, but he represents a communist leader named A.K. Gopalan. Oh, and the other two parallels that I noticed was um, Subhashan Rose's organization is the OO, and mm-hmm. I forget what it stands for, but I think it, what it represents in real life was the Indian National Army. And then the Gaurava Party, which is headed for the most for most of the book by Priya Duryodhani, is Indian National Congress. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the big real life corollaries. I think we got most of those right. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Did you pick a theme for the book? I didn't. And this is the first time I didn't pick a theme. Really? And I think I tried. My goal actually was to stick with the theme that I picked last episode. We talked about the Palace of Illusions, which is also a Mahabharata retelling. So I wanted to stick with the theme and see how I could compare similar themes to both of the books. There was just so much to figure out where I was like, I, I can't, I can't do a theme this episode. But so I didn't either. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> well, yesterday I was sitting down to write my notes, and I go in order of kind of the structure that I think we should go in when we have our discussion. And I got to the top of my notes. And I realized that the first thing after summary is theme. I was like, oh gosh, I didn't pick a theme. Because the same thing as you, I was, there's so much I was trying to figure out in this book, not just the direct corollaries that we just talked about with the characters and the different groups, but also like what the different allusions and jokes and metaphors were referring to that I completely forgot. And then I think when I was trying to think of one in hindsight, having read the book, the theme I came up with was responsibility. And I I think the meaning of responsibility I was thinking in my head is the one tied to dharma. Okay. And dharma is a concept that he actually writes an afterword about. And in the book and in the traditional story, I think Yudhishthira kind of represents dharma. But I kind of was thinking like, what is the responsibility of different people to themselves, to their country, to other people? What is the responsibility of historians in how they tell a story? What is the responsibility of this author in the way he satirizes and makes jokes about certain things? So I have a couple thoughts about that that might come up, but it definitely wasn't woven throughout the way I try to mm-hmm. pay attention to my themes. Yeah. And just to get started on our discussion, I had difficulty trying to understand if this book was about Indian history, where he tried to fit the Mahabharata in that storyline, or if it was the Mahabharata and he was trying to fit Indian history into the Mahabharata. There are parts of the book where I forget that I'm reading about Indian history and I think I'm just reading the Mahabharata. And then the opposite happens as well. And I think he switches between those two storylines so effortlessly that you just forget what the original story is. Yeah, and a lot of the descriptions of this book, if you look online for a summary or review, describe it as a Mahabharata retelling. But having read it, I don't agree with that description exactly. I think it felt more like story of Indian independence and becoming a new nation told through a story that people are already familiar with. I think he used the Mahabharata to make it more accessible and help draw these parallels and put forth his opinions on things. Because a lot of the book is about history. Like, I didn't know there was going to be this much history in it. And I initially kept wondering what was fiction and what was 
reality mm. because yeah. towards the beginning of the book, there's a fake Colonel Rudyard. That's not a real Colonel, but there's a real version of him who caused the Jellianwella bog massacres, which in the book are named something different. And then someone takes revenge and goes to kill the Colonel. Uh, and that's described in the book. And then I looked up in real life. And that's not how Rudyard Kipling died, who's an mm-hmm. author. So that was confusing to me. But I think after that part where he creates fake British personages, it's mostly pretty accurate. Like Gandhi's hunger strike to protect the mill workers' wages, mm-hmm. that was true. I had no idea about Germany and Japan's involvement in the independence movement. And initially when they started mentioning Hitler and Nazi Germany, I was like, this is so strange. And then I looked it up and... <laughs> Sebastian of the World actually did go to Germany and ask for an audience with him. I also, did you know that Mountbatten's proposed flags for India and Pakistan had the Union Jack in the corner? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then thankfully, both India and Pakistan rejected it because they were like, no, (laughs) this is not going to fly. But apparently Gandhi and Tolstoy apparently corresponded. I didn't know that either. I know there's just so many things I had no idea like Nehru and Lady Mountbatten were really good friends and there was speculation that they had an affair like everything I kept reading I was like oh this is fiction this is fiction yeah and then it wasn't that I think that's where I was having the most difficulty was I found myself like asking my mom or my fiance who are more familiar with Indian history than I am like did this really happen because some things I think he uses the Mahabharata to create a different storyline for a character. And so it was hard for me to... I wasn't really looking for a history lesson in this book, but it definitely gave me a lot. But then there were some parts where I was like trying to figure out which parts were true and which parts weren't, which right. I think is not maybe so great if you're looking for a history lesson. Yeah, I was going to say the opposite, that I liked it because it made you curious to find out what's fact and what's fiction versus if you read just a textbook where it says this happened on this day and then this person met this person, you just have no reason to care. Yeah. Um, but I agree, you have to kind of know that there's a lot of history going into it because if that's not something for you, this book maybe isn't for you. I think that was my problem was I'm so unfamiliar with Indian history that if I didn't have these people to lean on and maybe was just too lazy to look things up because I was just looking to read an entertaining book, I would maybe walk away from this thinking that all these things happened when they actually didn't happen. And so that's where I was like, someone who reads this book needs to have some understanding of Indian history prior to reading it. And actually, the way the book reads felt more to me like essays of political commentary than a fiction novel. So I think that's probably part of that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I did want to talk about was this book was written as a satire. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. I think I missed a lot of the satirical elements of the book because I guess I was just so focused on understanding what was happening that I think his way of using satire was very sarcastic and kind of subtle in some ways. But it wasn't so obvious to me that like this certain paragraph is satire because I didn't know enough to know the truth of that situation. Like, for example, the Dandi March in history is a famous march that Gandhi did for non-taxation of salt. Mm-hmm. And in the book, they compare that to mangoes. And- Which I didn't understand. That was one change that I I agree. A lot of it probably went over my head, but... There were parts that I thought were pretty funny, like towards the later half of the book when 
there's tension between India and China and the Tibet border is being drawn. And in real life, it's the McMahon line named mm-hmm. after a British guy named McMahon. And in the book, he calls it the Big Mac line after a Scottish person, McDonald. And I just thought it was funny. It was like, he's just pointing out how absurd these whole things are that like someone with absolutely no knowledge of the region and the culture and the historical context is drawing these arbitrary lines that yeah. he like calls it a Big Mac line. And I think that was where I saw it being used successfully. Yeah. Like similarly in the Mango March, like it just seems ridiculous to like in the way that he writes it in the book where it's like, comparisons with how ridiculous that situation was that they were putting taxes on mangoes that you could pluck from a tree down the street to salt that was being taxated at that time and certain things like that I was like it wasn't like an immediate like haha that's funny it was like me reading through that whole thing stopping understanding that this was a parallel to the Dandi march and then like reflecting and being like oh yeah like that's so stupid like right it's not like a haha funny it's like a huh that's funny like i think he's putting a lot of humor on the stupidity of a lot of things that happened in indian history and so it kind of makes you think like yeah that was pretty dumb that they did that but i i i mean i saw a lot of reviews before i read the book that people were like i was laughing out loud and people were looking at me funny on the train when i was reading this book i don't think i laughed out loud once I laughed out loud once, and that was when he was talking about some, like, British committees that they formed to help with the independence, and the abbreviations were spick and span, and I that was so funny. Yeah. But I think a a lot of his critique is more thought-provoking than funny. So he talks about Gandhi's actions, but then Gandhi's legacy also, and how a lot of it has become these performative actions and Mm non-cooperation that actually do nothing in making any kind of progress but they just cause drama and i did agree with a lot of those critiques yeah but the one thing i didn't like about his use of satire is i felt like maybe he applied it too broadly like he was very indiscriminate about how he used the satire so while i think it was appropriate to use it on these like ridiculous british officials and their like inability, like Mountbatten, right? He had no idea what he was doing. He kind of bungled the whole thing and mm-hmm. forced the partition. But he also applies that same sharpness of satire to the native population, and especially like some parts that are talking about rural and like uneducated people. I felt like it should have held back on it then. Like I don't think it was I don't think it was equal or equitable for him to be applying the satire so broadly. I think there are certain instances that warranted it more than others. Yeah, same with woman too. I think he mm-hmm. used satire a lot against what women should represent. But overall, I think it was just a personal thing for me that a lot of the satire and comedy elements of the book went over my head because if I had 100% understood who the characters were and what was happening in that moment, I would have understood things enough for me to also understand the comedy parts of it. I think the other thing that contributed to that maybe was he, a lot of his literary influences you can tell are British authors and there are parts that really reminded me of like P.G. Woodhouse or Evelyn Woe and like those kinds of authors and he even references many of them. I think Rudyard Kipling, he makes the colonel, Mm -hmm. or he confuses that name. Hayslop is apparently a character from Passage to India. And then he also, like, uses the chapter's titles 
as like puns of novels or like common concepts like one of them is a raj quartet which is a reference to the raj quartet which was like a big series by a british author so i think probably you may have read less british literature from that time than i have maybe but the thing that stood out to me when you're comparing how he uses the mahabharat in the context of the story was how the timeline changed i think i mentioned this earlier but the story really is about the five bandavas and then their cousins, the Gauravas. Mm-hmm. But in this book, a lot of it focuses on their dads, Bandhu and Dharashtra, and then also Bhishma. Yeah. Do you think it worked or do you think it didn't work? I think it worked in the sense where maybe it wasn't like 100% accurate and I, that wasn't my expectation anyways. Mm-hmm. But the parallels that he drew with the Marbarth, I think added to his satirical elements of the book. I think the one thing that I had difficulty with is when you read the Mahabharat, you're kind of meant to root for the Pandavas mm-hmm. and the Kauravas are kind of like the villains. And it's hard for me to kind of label in history who's a villain and who's a hero because yeah. I think everyone has their pros and their cons. Everyone's done good things and bad things because Duryodhana, when I think of Duryodhana, I think of a villain. Like I think of like, oh, this is who the Pandavas are fighting. Yeah. And so when you label Indra Gandhi as Duryodhana, it was like, oh, like I guess. It also made me like kind of sympathize for her where she's like being written in history as this villain. And I don't think she did very good things, but I, I still think that maybe she did a few things that are, are noteworthy to the nation. Yeah. I think though he does comment on it at the end. He says like the whole time you're kind of waiting for the battle of Kurukshetra and then it doesn't really happen. Like he kind mm-hmm. of alludes that the election is that is battle, battle, but not really. And he says it's the narrator Vedvyas talking to Ganpati, who's the scribe. And he says, I hope not because there were no victors at Kurukshetra except in childish popular versions of the epic. The story of the Mahabharata young man does not end on the field of battle. What happens afterwards is tragedy, suffering, futility, death. What underlines the only moral of that battle and that epic, that there are no real victors. Everyone loses at the end. And he asks, like, what what about the conflict and the battle between good and evil? He says, it was a battle between cousins. They were killing each other's flesh and blood, shooting arrows into their own gurus, lying and deceiving their elders in order to win. There was good and bad, dishonor and treachery, betrayal and death on both sides. There was no glorious victory at Kurukshetra. And so I think he kind of does try to make it a little more nuanced that like Mm -hmm. only in very quick summaries of stories do you get this good and bad. And I would kind of want to read a version of the Mahabharata from the Gauravas point of view. That would be interesting. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. The other thing I noticed was that a lot of the main events in the Mahabharata didn't show up in the story directly. Mm-hmm. They were like dreams, Yeah, which I didn't love that. Yeah, it kind of seemed like, a oh, I need to fit this in somehow. Mm-hmm. So here's what I'll do. Right. But also, it, it, I think it was hard enough to recast the entire Mahabharata into historical figures in history. Like that task itself was probably very difficult. And I think he did a good job. Yeah. I wish the dice game had been real. The dice game was a dream. Draupadi's Swayamvara was a dream. And then I thought that the whole storyline of like Draupadi's derobing or whatever would have been symbolized well by like, the division of India and Pakistan because that was what caused so much violence. But then instead they had like this person or Drupad causing it. So mm-hmm. that like some of those parallels 
didn't translate exactly, but I, I agree. It's like hard to have everything match exactly in terms yeah. of character and intention. And for me, only near the end of the book does he like straight out say that Draupadi is a symbol for India's democracy. But before he said that, I took it as Draupadi was the symbol for India mm-hmm. because these bad things would happen and then he would end a chapter with Draupadi is sick or getting not feeling well when bad things happen to the country. And then when good things happen to the country, he was like, oh, Draupadi is well fed and she's happy and she's flush with joy or something like that. Yeah. And that's how he kind of drew parallels into incidents that were happening to Draupadi as a character. But for me, I didn't see it as democracy until the end. And then I was like, oh. I think your version works. I liked how using the Mahabharat for this story was also kind of a commentary on history. Because mm-hmm. there were so many events like Gandhi not drinking cow's milk, then drinking goat's milk. It sounds like folklore, but it mm-hmm. was real. I know. <laughs> and I think it blurred that line even more where you're like, is this real? Is this myth? Is it folklore? What is it? And I think that in itself is commentary showing you how history can be told or how it can sound ridiculous and how certain parts are emphasized versus others. Yeah, and I we keep talking about the fact that he used satire in in the book, but I didn't really have time to really understand, appreciate, or even know if I liked or disliked his writing style. But what did you think of his writing style? I have some notes. Oh, okay. I like it's fine for the most part. It's easy enough to read. I think it's trying too hard. Yeah. Well, also, what I guess, like, giving Shashi Thurur the benefit of the doubt is this was his first book. So maybe the other ones, he's written 23 books, I think. And so maybe he's improved along the years. And this was just, like, the one that maybe wasn't so great. Because I agree, I wasn't, like, overly impressed or, like, had anything to say about his writing style to the point where I appreciated it. I, I think it was fine. Yeah, I think I don't necessarily always agree with Ernest Hemingway's kind of philosophy about writing where you should write very simply in the way you talk and without complicated language. But I would apply that to this book. Like there were so many words I highlighted. Like he used the word bathos or bathos in this book three times. And I have never heard of that word once in my life. And I read quite a bit. And for you to wor- use a word that obscure, you get to use it maybe once in the whole book, but it came up three times. One sentence, he says, a choice of cognomen, which ignored by his secular anglicization. And I was like, what is cognomen? Cognomen <laughs> literally just means a name or appellation. And it, it, some, it got to a point where it was reminding me of, you know, that episode of Friends where Oh Joey- my God, I was just thinking <laughs> Joey writes that recommendation letter for Monica Chandler and he uses a thesaurus for every single word. That's what it felt like at times. I was like, you can just say name. You don't have to like find a fancy way to say it. It's also just because the Mahabharata alone is complex. Indian history alone is complex. And then weaving those two together is borderline too complex. And then when you add like a layer of difficult language to it, it becomes impossible to read for some people. Mm -hmm. And it's just unnecessary. Like terminal concupiscence. Do you know what that means? (laughs) 
These are like those SAT words, like pulchritude. Like you learn it for the SAT and then you never, ever use it in your writing. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. Well, but that's my main gripe with it. I don't, I think if you got rid of the, the pretentious words, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with his writing. Yeah. I mean, speaking of pretentious, that is a word I hear a lot to describe Shashi Thurur as a person. And I know this is like a very hot take that many people may disagree with, but I believe in separating the art from the artist. And I know you think similarly. I mean, I think there's some lines you have to draw even when you think that way. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that won't read this book specifically because it's by Shashi Thurur. Mm-hmm. And so I know you have some tea to spill. I'm just going to let you do it. You do it. <laughs> Okay, I'm not totally up to date on all of it, and it's kind of hard to be up to date because everything is very, like, milky, painted in broad strokes, like, no details, hush-hush. So he is actually a member of parliament. He has been for many years, and he's written, I think we were talking about the books he's written. He's written, like, 20-something other books. He is also on a couple of committees, boards, universities across the world. He is a smart person and he's accomplished. Even if you didn't know that he wrote books, there are a lot of people that would still know his name because he's just a figure in history and politics. And he's the most vocal South Asian figure from South Asia, not including the diaspora in, in Western countries, about colonialism and the legacy of violence that was directly from the British. A lot mm-hmm. of Indians have this very complicated like Stockholm syndrome thing with the UK where it's like, oh, they suck, but oh, we love them and we're going to try and emulate them. And I'm not saying he is devoid of that. He has it too. Like if you listen to the way he speaks, he speaks a very refined, like Delhi, almost British sounding accent. Wasn't he born in London? Who's born in London, but he's an Indian son, which is not all to say that he is not pretentious. I think both can exist. You can be very smart and accomplished and still also be a little pretentious. So that's my first thought. And then in terms of the controversy, there was something to do. This one I didn't find out much about. I don't know if you did. There was something to do with the IPL, the Indian Premier League of Cricket. And he was like trading or like doing something illegal with the ballots do you know what that was about? Yeah. I mean, when my fiance first saw that I was reading Shashi Thurur, the first thing he said it was something about the IPL. So it's very well known, his controversy to it. Unfortunately, I don't know too much about it, but I promise I will do a follow-up after I talk to my fiance about it because <laughs> he knows like every detail about what Instagram Live exclusive about yeah. <laughs> the IPL controversy. But the other thing that's a little bit more recent is the death of his wife. Dun dun. So the best I could get about this was this one BuzzFeed article that went through all of the tweets. Oh, BuzzFeed. Yeah. BuzzFeed talked about this. Interesting. Basically what happened was his wife, this is his third wife, Sunanda Pushkar. And he was also her third husband as well. Yes. So this was not a first marriage for either of them. And at some point, she was ill. She was in the hospital or something. And around that time somehow on his account this tweet got published that looked like a private love letter which i don't know why it would be a tweet from this pakistani journalist called meher 
there are? I have a theory on why it was a tweet. I think at that time, Shashi Tharoor was one of the most followed Indian politicians on Twitter. So I think they posted on Twitter because they knew that they would gain the most traction on mm. there. So that was posted that like their correspondence. And then there was this whole like tweet war between Sunanda Pushkar and Meher Tharar about how Pushkar was accusing Tharar of stalking Shashi Tharoor and also of having an affair. And they both said very nasty things. And I was like, please conduct yourselves <laughs> this is a, a little bit more platform. dignified. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of days after this happened, Sunanda Pushkar was found dead in her hotel room in Delhi. And Shashi Thurur was at a conference or something that day. All of the evidence is very unclear. They were investigating it as a homicide. And she had some like marks of violence on her body. And there was some question of either like Xanax packets being in the room or they found traces of Xanax at the autopsy. Every source says something different. Long story short, he was cleared of all charges two years ago. Don't know if they have incriminated anybody else. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the controversy with that. That's literally insane. Yeah. Like, I was walking around with this book in my hand, and I can tell you at least three people saw the book and was like, did you know he killed his wife? Really? I'm not joking. I mean, there wow. are people I knew. Like, there wasn't, like, random strangers who were, like, just seeing yeah. that I was reading this book. That would be more <laughs> interesting if, like, people in Portland <laughs> just, like, knew Shashi no, like, people I knew. Like, people still believe that he did that. Well, like I said, separate the art from the artist. I did not. Yes. <laughs> even though that was being said to me while I was reading this book, I did not let it affect my opinion of this book. So... That's the tea, maybe most controversial author we've covered. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this is like the spiciest tea that we've ever talked about. The whole episode has been spicy tea. I was like, Nehru and Lady Mountbatten were having an affair? Like, what? <laughs> like, even in the book, there was so much tea. That's true. Um, I did just want to talk a little bit about post-colonial literature, because I think this falls pretty well in that category. Mm-hmm. Postcolonial literature is kind of a broad term that's been applied to works written by authors from previous colonial territories, and usually the prevalent themes have to do with resistance and reclaiming their heritage. So this book definitely does that in using the Mahabharata as a way to reclaim and kind of rewrite the history in a way. Because we talked about how the British schooling system is not teaching children about their colonial legacy. The Indian schooling system probably does it in a very white and black way. Yeah, they very sh- they sugarcoat mm-hmm. it. And I think he tries to rewrite definitions a lot too. Like at the beginning, he talks about India and he says he doesn't think India is an underdeveloped country. He calls it a highly developed country in an advanced state of decay. And I think throughout the book, he kind of makes these little remarks and references to things that commonly are thought of in a certain way and he's trying to rewrite it Mm -hmm. yeah i think he changes the mahabharata story to fit things that happened in history as well for example eklavya is a character in the mahabharata who is a very skilled archer so skilled to the point where he is almost as good as arjun who's supposedly the greatest archer of the mahabharata and he shows himself to Drona, who's the teacher, and he 
says, I've been learning from you like off the side. I've been trying to observe and learn and I have the skill. And Drona, who sees the potential in this student, asks him to give up his thumb as a fee. And in the Mahabharata, he gladly gives it as a way to show his appreciation for Drona. And because he does that, he no longer can be the greatest archer. And so in this book, Ikilavya as a character is actually a symbol for the youth of India. He refuses. He does not give his thumb as the fee that Drona demands. And I think that is a way of the author trying to show that the youth is not going to give in. Hmm. And they're going to fight. And they're going to grow into and not, not concede to the demands of the current political government. Interesting. I was going to ask why you think that he changed that. Because that was one of the only Mahabharata stories that he significantly changed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, like that, he, he, I think he rewrites certain things to show a positive way past post-colonialism, which most of the book is not very positive in that stance. But he doesn't do it consistently because yeah. there's a lot of parts you were saying earlier about like his treatment of women. I think there's a lot of things that he could have updated that he didn't. Like, I was disappointed mm-hmm. that he kept the thing about Draupadi being re-virginized when she goes to every new husband, because it had absolutely no implication on this story, and I find it sexist. Yeah. So he could have updated that. The thing about Krishna's sister, when Arjun goes and he's like, oh, like, elope with her, like, he took abduct as a very literal term, and he literally abducted abduct her. her. Which you easily could have interpreted that as elope and just quietly had a consensual marriage. So that was icky. Yeah. And just in general, I think this book is very controversial for a lot of reasons. I think it touches on things that not a lot of people like to talk about in politics because it very plainly talks about like just the differences between the Muslim and the Hindu groups in India and the partition there's so much death and tragedy involved in these fights that it's not something that's talked about a lot. But surprisingly, this book hasn't been banned in any way. I think a lot of books have been banned for much less. That's true. However, I saw that it was banned recently in a certain location. I can't remember where now because of the way that it talks about women. Hmm. Interesting. The other thing I really didn't like in the book was there were parts that I think were pretty racist. I really, really hate, I think this is the thing I hate more than anything, when authors try to write an accent in the way that they spell words and use grammar and syntax, because that implies that there's a correct way to pronounce the words and that the character who's pronouncing it differently is wrong Mm -hmm. or to be made fun of. There's a lot of books that do this. Like North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, I could barely get through because she exaggerates this one character's accent who's poor and from like this rural area in England to the point that it's unreadable. And this book, I was even more disappointed by it because there's one part where he is talking about, I think he's talking about a Malayali man's accent. And when the narrator is narrating it, he reprimands Ganpati for transcribing it differently. And he says, the people 
spelled out people, Ganpati, and Neetu Blaise. Like, he just, it's so exaggerated. Yeah. And then he says, Mahadeva Menon's English was as valid a language to him as to its American or Australian variants are to their speakers. So there's no need to parody his accent in print. But that is exactly what Shashitharu is doing throughout this book. Like with South Indian yeah. accents, he does it with Japanese accents. I just, I didn't like it. I thought it was unnecessary. It didn't add anything. Yeah. And it was also very hypocritical for him to say that and then be like, oh, you shouldn't. Like everyone's English is valid, but like I'm going to make fun of it. Also, I think Shashitharu is Malayali. Yeah. So it's like, why are you making fun of your own people? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, Indian accents have been just used in, as satire in media for too long. I don't way too long now. E- even like, I still see it. Not even that. Like, a lot of people who know English in India, it's not American English. Mm-hmm. It's British English, obviously, or Indian English. There's a lot of colloquial terms that have evolved over the years, and still, people will correct me with the way that I speak because I spent 11 years in India a lot of the English that I know is British English or Indian English because I just lived there for so long and I'm like just because I live in the United States right now and I use British English doesn't mean that I'm wrong like Uh English is a language that has many different versions and I've been corrected I know I've been corrected too and it's like the funniest part of it like I wish he had satirize this more is that there is a no form of english anywhere that's phonetic like mm-hmm. actually hindi is pretty phonetic so you could argue there is a correct pronunciation or not because the letters that are used correspond directly to the way you pronounce it but yeah because the alphabet is sounds not letters right that's why yeah right like no form of english is phonetic and it's just ridiculous for people to think that there's a correct way yeah i had one question that if you were going to set the Mahabharata in any historical time period, when would you set it? Or like if you were going to do something similar where you use it to like tell a story or an allegory, any country, any historical period. That's a good question. I can give you mine first if it helps you think. Well, yeah, tell me yours first. I think I would do the American Civil War because I think the parallel works of it being like brothers, like the Korvas and the Pandavas mm-hmm. are brothers and North and South are like brothers. And I think that would be an interesting one. I don't know who Lincoln would be. I haven't like fully thought this through. <laughs> yeah. But. I mean, if you were to fully think it through, you should write a book because that's basically what <laughs> that's what he did. did. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess like the way, the reason why I'm finding it difficult to answer that question is because the Mahabharata is so family oriented. And unfortunately, Indian politics is also pretty family oriented. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's easy to draw those comparisons, but maybe not a real life situation. But I would be interested to s- see Mahabharata intertwined into another story, like Harry Potter mm-hmm. or a Shakespeare play mm-hmm. or something like that. Like instead of like a real life situation. Mm-hmm. It would work well with Shakespeare. Yeah. If anyone wants to tell us which Harry Potter characters are which Mahabharata characters. <laughs> I'd be very curious. That would be pretty fun. Yeah. I, w- I mean, obviously, Harry would be Arjun, kind of. Would he be Arjun or would he be Yudhishthira? Because Yudhishthira is always about like doing the right thing and like his honor and his duty. I don't know. I see like the five Pandavas as like Hermione, Ron, Harry like Neville and like Ginny or Luna or something like that, you know? Mm. And then Duryodhan is obviously like Malfoy. <laughs> and then their parents would be like 
Dhritashtra and Pandu and mm-hmm. I think Harry would be all five Pandavas. Really? Yeah. But yeah, that's where I would be interested to see it. But do you have a passage? Oh yes, I do. So this one is kind of a long passage. This is towards the end of the book when Arjun is in exile. In the urban Bengal of the Maoist coffee houses and secondhand bookshops and crowded theaters, Arjun met a young poet with piercing eyes and a goatee who recited with painful intensity the refrain, Calcutta, if you must exile me, blind my eyes before I go. Blind my eyes, Arjun understood, to the despair and the disrepair, the dirt and degradation, but also to the searing summer beauty of the gulmohar and cassia blossoms, flaming insolent and tender along the dusty roadsides, to the awesome thunderclouds swallowing up the rooftops before a northwester's storm, to the little boats gently bobbing on the Huli River at sunset against the shining steel frame of the massive Howrah Bridge. Blind my eyes to the riders and the agitations and the human mollusks clinging to the outsides of smoke-spewing buses, but also to the kaleidoscope of brightly colored kites leaping up at the blue sky, to the little boys playing cricket with makeshift gear in countless narrow lanes, to the compassion of students, housewives, and nuns who strive to serve the city's victims. Blind my eyes, finally, to the flimsy sheet-covered forms of the homeless sleeping under the arcades of fashionable hotels, to the resigned despair in the unblinded eyes of the woman, a small infant balanced on her hip and two ragged children trailing behind, who begged for help in a thin, melancholy wail, which clung tenaciously to the air long after she had silently received Arjun's alms and left. Arjun left too, but each departure was a new beginning. In the foothills of the Himalayas, he saw poor village women tying themselves to tree trunks in a defiant and life-saving embrace to prevent the saws of rapacious contractors cutting them down for commercial timber. In the deserts of Rajasthan, he found how cheap it was to buy a woman for life at the district bazaar and wrote savagely about his own purchase for such a woman for 60 rupees. When he told her she was free to go, she asked, where to? In urban Madras, he marched alongside slogan-shouting Tamil demonstrators, whose protests against the imposition of that alien and barbaric northern tongue masquerading as a national language, Hindi, soon disintegrated into riots in which buildings and vehicles otherwise innocent of linguistic preference were stoned and burned in the angry flames of Theridian cultural assertion. He saw the devastation wreaked by cyclones in the lush green lands of the Coromandel coast, and he dragged himself above the floodwaters to travel to drought-ravaged Bihar. There he walked on the parched, sun-scorched clay oven that had once been part of the fertile Gangetic plain, feeling the earth cracking and crumbling underfoot, learning the meaning of famine in the hollow cheeks and sunken eyes of mothers whose babies sucked at breasts as dry as the area's riverbreds. Here, too, in the cradle of Magadhan civilization that had ruled India more than 2,000 years earlier, he watched a skeletal cow stumble and collapse by the side of a withered tree, and as he saw village women tend to pour the last precious drops of water from her own lota into the animal's mouth, the thought struck him with overwhelming intensity, this is my land. It was kind of long, but I liked it because I think I and probably a lot of other Indians, South Asians and people who identify similarly have a complicated relationship with the country. Yeah. It's confusing to hold in your mind those two concepts that your motherland is so beautiful, but so corrupt, corrupted. And I thought that passage did a really good job of showing both together. Yeah. It's interesting because at the end of the last episode, Palace and Illusions, I think I ended the episode by saying, Jay Hind, because I just felt a lot of pride after the end of that episode because 
the Mahabharata is just so, it's like just an, the epic poem mm-hmm. of the world. And so you have a lot of pride reading that story. But I don't necessarily end this episode with the same sentiments because I think this book just touches on just all of the complications that our country has been forced to go through through its independence. And not necessarily to the fault of the British or Indians specifically, just the circumstances of which our independence fell was not the best one. Mm-hmm. And we fought a lot to be where we are today. And even where we are today, it's not perfect. I have a complicated relationship with my pride to India more today than I think 15 years ago when I lived there. Mm-hmm. But I think that passage draws those sentiments pretty accurately. Mm-hmm. Also, did you know about the thing where like Mountbatten, he said later that if he had known Janelle was dying, he would have just like pushed it off so that they could avoid partition altogether. I just, I don't know if I just I don't know if I believe that. Really? But he's in real life he said I it. know, but like you can say it's like the same thing as like Kunti saying that oh if only you had told your brothers that the truth Right. There's the, no one thing that can yeah, stop. Yeah. Yeah. But it could have changed things. Like if Jinnah was no longer around and he was like the main proponent of partition and Nehru was like neutral, Gandhi was against it, Mountbatten didn't want to deal with it. It could have gone another way. I don't know, because when I think of it, I think of, like, Jinnah's a very replaceable character. If it was Jinnah that was dying, somebody else would have stepped up to take his place, and the same thing would have happened. So, I mean, there's no way of knowing, of course, but I just, it's hard for me to say, though, like, if one thing had been different, then Mm -hmm. the outcome would have been changed. Yeah, that's true. And it's, like, the same debate of, like, what changes history or the future, and yeah. like it's beyond like any one person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shall we filter the chai? Let's do it. Okay. Do you want to go first? Sure. I'm scared to go first. Why? Because I rated it a six, which I think is pretty low for me. And it's not because I didn't enjoy it. I think if I read the book again, not now, because it was it took up way too much of my mind space while I was reading <sighs> it. But maybe in like three or four years, where I'm now more familiar with the history that was involved in the story that I would enjoy it more. But I just found myself Googling. Maybe this is my own. I could have just read the book and understood it as I understood it and not worried about like the truth of the situation and that actual history and who the characters were. But I found myself wanting to know about it. And so the book took forever for me to read because I was just pausing every five pages to Google things. And I'm glad I did because now I know more I'm walking away from this book knowing a lot more than I did before, which I think is the goal. But it didn't make the read enjoyable to me. What did you rate it? I gave it a 9 out of 10. I knew you were going to rate it high. That's why I was scared to rate it low. (laughs) (laughs) I also knew you were not going to like it as much as I did. And I was even thinking before, I was like, wow, is this the first book that we've like really disagreed on? Or not disagreed, but had such a difference in our... experiences, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that component of kind of like researching everything and learning about stuff. I think it added to my reading experience. It definitely took a long time to read because of it, but I feel like I walked away from this book really glad that I had read it, Mm -hmm. and it it is something that I would want to come back to later. And I think I would probably recommend this book more to people who enjoy nonfiction, but do you think... 
this book will stand the test of time? I, I wrote no. And my reasons were exactly what we talked about. Is if I was to give this book to like a colleague, I can guarantee you that that colleague will be like, what the hell is this? Because <sighs> they would be going into this not knowing the Mahabharat, not knowing Indian history, not knowing anything. And this book would make no sense to them. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I think if you are well first in the Mahabharat and Indian history, I would recommend this book to them. But just in general, to like the general public, the world, whoever's listening out there, I don't recommend this book as a book that will stand the test of time. I am also going to give an answer that you're not going to like, because it doesn't even answer the question. But I think this book should be required reading in Indian schools, because I think it never will, because it doesn't match up with the structure of how the Indian school system works, which is that after 10th grade, it's junior college. It's not high school anymore. It doesn't, it wouldn't work because there's no way you can get a bunch of high schoolers to read a 600 page book and you can't take that much class time to do it in real time. But I think it's valuable in teaching history through a lens that most students would be familiar with. And it gives enough nuance that makes you think about history Mm -hmm. and also would hopefully spark discussion about some of the more problematic elements and how it can be updated to the current day. But I agree. I think it's a little too esoteric for people who have no knowledge of Indian history and the Mahabharat. I think for the South Asian diaspora, for a South Asian continent, it's a very good way to approach learning about that stuff because Mm -hmm. it's putting history as something you may not remember or know about in a context that's more familiar. But if you don't know the Mahabharat, then it's doing the opposite and making it even less accessible. Yeah. Like you said, I I think I do agree with you about it being a required reading for students out there because it just sparks discussions, this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sparked a lot of discussions with me and my mom and dad that I don't think I've ever asked them before. Like in the book, they talk about what they call the siege and mm-hmm. in real life, it was called an emergency that Indra Gandhi yeah. put in under India as a country. And I think I never asked my mom or dad how life was during emergency because they were in high school, I think, when that happened. Mm-hmm. And so it sparked interesting discussions that I wouldn't have otherwise asked my parents of like, what happened during this time? What did you think? And what was the truth behind it? And my mom lived in Delhi at the time. And so it was. Mm. she said it was very scary. And I think in that sense, it, I don't know, it's hard. Like I would recommend this book. Like I told my dad, I was like, you should read this book. It's good. But then at the same time, like to the majority of the people who I run in circles with, I don't think I would recommend it to, to them. Mm-hmm. Do you have a shelf discovery? I do. Do you? Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything, but I'm glad you do. I think like, obviously we're pairing this book with the Palace of Illusions, because they're both retellings of the Mahabharat. But I made my shelf discovery about the writing style, not the writing style, but the genre, like satire. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of this went over my head, I thought like maybe a more subtle or easily accessible version of that book is called The Humans by Matt Haig. I think I've talked about it in previous episodes, or maybe just Matt Haig in general. I really like his writing and The Humans is a book about, it sounds really dumb when I explain what the book is, but um, it's a alien 
that has a mission on earth and he's experiencing life, human life and civilization for the first time. And he's noticing all these weird quirks that we have. And it's just reading about humans in a lens of someone who has no idea what humans are and I think it just it's just so funny and it kind of does the same thing as this book where you're like huh that is kind of stupid why do we do that and it kind of like ridicules like things that we have now I think are normal so yeah I, I thought that was like a good book to put for shelf discovery this episode all right so that wraps up our compare and contrast our history lesson episode (laughs) yeah well before we head to our next stop actually we are going to be putting out a bonus episode where we will talk a little bit about the Mahabharat and kind of some of the key subplots and how they are portrayed in both of these books and we'll compare and contrast and then we will give some more background on the Mahabharat and some additional reading if you're interested and then Where are we going after that? We are going to Korea. We're just hopping over from India to Korea, which is actually a very short flight. Oh, Um, really? I I know it's a short flight, but we are doing Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. I'm really excited about this one, mostly because it's been on my TBR for like ages, way too long. Like since it came out. Yeah, and I don't know why I've never gotten around to reading it, but... We, we finally will be, so I'm excited. Yeah. All right. See you guys in the Mahabharata episode. Tune in. Or in the comments on Instagram. Yeah. Please follow us on Instagram. <laughs> We're trying really hard out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you. Send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.